Well, recently I was attending a board meeting on the campus of Heartland Baptist Bible College where I serve as an executive director. And um, during the board meeting, as uh, we so often um, have, we had a, at the beginning of this semester, and uh, we had an, an update on uh, campus life and some things that uh, were going on, and the dean of uh, the students uh, was talking to us and telling us about some things and told us a rather humorous story about a, a new single student on campus, and he was there during the orientation time, and the dean was going over some of the, the rules and things that uh, would not necessarily apply on other campuses, but uh, you would expect to apply on the, the campus of a Christian uh, institution, and, and one of those had to do with the policy about opposite-sex members being in the dorms of one another. And uh, he was addressing that, and he said, the first time you're caught breaking that rule, it's going to cost you $20. He said, the second time you're caught breaking that rule, it's going to cost you $60. And if you break it a third time, we're going to fine you $180. And about that time, that young single student raised his hand and said, how much for a season pass? <laughs> <laughs> My kind of guy. I mean, come on, you can't blame him for trying. Really. Now, I'm going to invite you to uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24, if I were to title this message today, I would title it, The Rules of Engagement. I'm not necessarily going to be preaching today to those who are married, though there will be some things uh, throughout the course of the message that should give some married folks reason to, to think about some things. But really, my target audience today are singles. Those who hope to one day be married. Now, last week, I shared some thoughts with you about how to persist in a difficult marriage. And I trust that some of the things that we talked about last week were a, a help to those whose marriage may be struggling a bit. And if you're here this morning or you're here last week and your marriage isn't struggling, well, praise God for that. Maybe you could point a friend or a family member to our website because you know they are having some difficulties. And... Um, just encourage them to go to fellowshipfamily.org and, and download the, uh, the sermon. They can listen to it right there on, on, uh, online, and uh, maybe it will be a help to them. If you were here last week, then you know that in that message, I gave you two reasons why marriages struggle. And these certainly 
Those weren't the only reasons, but they are two common reasons why marriages sometimes tend to suffer. And, and one of those is the fact that people marry the wrong person. And the second one was that they marry for the wrong purpose. My goal in, in preaching this sixth message in our series is to hopefully keep some of our outstanding single adults and, and even some single adults who are hoping who are single again. Here's my goal today. I want to try and help you from making some of the mistakes that we talked about last week and other mistakes along the way. So look in Genesis chapter 24. I begin reading in verse 1, And Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house, that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh. And this is going to sound a little strange, but this was a custom of that day and age. Today we may just shake on it. I would prefer that, actually. <laughs> Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, uh, and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. And the servant said unto him, Peradventure the woman will not be willing to follow me unto this land. We're talking here approximately 500 miles. And we say, well, what if she's not willing to move 500 miles away from her family? He said, must I needs bring thy son again unto the land which thou camest? In other words, if she won't come to him, should I take him to her? And Abraham said unto him, beware that thou bring not my son thither again. The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and which spake unto me and that swear unto me saying unto thy seed will I give this land he shall send his angel before thee and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence and if the woman will not be willing to follow thee then thou shalt be clear from this my oath only bring not my son thither again and the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swear to him concerning that matter. So here in our text, as was the uh, culture of that day, we find Abraham in search of a bride for his son Isaac. Because if you know anything about the life of Abraham, you know that God promised to perpetuate the nation of Israel through Abraham's son Isaac. And uh, uh, life tells us that in order for that to happen, Isaac needed a woman. And so Abraham sends, Isaac, uh, sends his, his uh, oldest and, and most trusted uh, servant, uh, probably is, it was Eliezer, we're introduced to him in Genesis chapter 15, his chief of staff, if you will, 
he sends him uh, back to the place that he came from, and, and he, he tasks him with the responsibility of finding a wife for his son Isaac. But there were two stipulations. Number one, um, she had to come from Abraham's people, which would be the Jews. And number two, under no circumstances was Isaac to leave the promised land. In Abraham's heart, there was no room for compromise. He was going to believe God's word, and he was going to do things God's way, and he was going to leave the outcome to God's will. And let me say this about God's will. Even though it was clearly God's will for Isaac to be married in order to carry on the lineage of Abraham, his father, it's not necessarily God's will for everyone to be married. I think Paul addresses that well in the book of 1 Corinthians. And yes, listen to me, singles, there is something worse than being single. And that is being married outside of God's will. Many have done it and have lived to regret it. Some of those who have married outside of God's will have done so out of panic. I mean, they, they were afraid that their window of opportunity was closing. Others have gotten married due to pressure. Maybe it was pressure from their parents or maybe pressure from their peers or someone else close to them, but they were pressuring them and hounding them and making them feel uh, less than normal. If it, Well, why aren't you married at this time? Maybe some well-meaning aunt who pulled you aside and said, I just don't get it. Why aren't you married? Well, auntie, I'm just not. There's something worse than being single. Others have gotten married because they were persuaded that marriage would be the end of all solution to their unhappiness. And this is a myth that leads us to part of what I want to address today. Some of the things that are touted as inevitable benefits of marriage are in reality nothing but myths. For example, marriage will end my aloneness. That's a myth. A single person wrote this about her struggles with loneliness. I can't think of anything I hate more than being alone. Everywhere I turn, I see couples. Couples on television, couples in cars, couples on planes, couples in restaurants. Everywhere there are reminders that I am alone. I wonder if I will ever find a person to fill that hole in my heart. That last sentence, I wonder if I will ever find a person to fill that hole in my heart is a huge, brightly flashing warning signal. And here's why. No human being will ever offer perfect intimacy. I'll guarantee you that her thinking was that the right man would forever end 
her aloneness. That somehow he would fill the hole in her heart. Church, listen to me this morning. Marriage is not the cure-all for human loneliness. No, 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 no. The truth is there are millions of desperately lonely married people. They may eat at the same table. They may share dual recliners. They may even sleep in the same bed at night. But they still feel lonely. Is that because they married the wrong person or just built a shallow marriage? Not necessarily. It could be that they have simply placed an unrealistic demand on their spouse and on their marriage. Understand this. God created us not for one, but for two levels of relational intimacy. The one level can be met by establishing a a deep, honest, trusting relationship with the marriage partner. The other level, however, listen to me, can only be met by entering into an, an authentic, growing relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. A good marriage to the right person entered into under God's direction and carefully nourished can go a long way toward meeting the human need for intimacy. But within every human heart, every human heart, there remains a hole that only God can fill. Now, if a person doesn't understand that they have two levels of relational intimacy, one on the horizontal level and the other on a a vertical level, then here's what's going to happen. They're going to feel the need for this relationship. They may not know what it is or understand it, but they're going to feel it And so here's what's going to happen because they don't understand it. They don't know what that feeling is. These two levels of intimacy are going to get mixed. That is, they are going to be lumped together as this one huge gnawing need. And the result is a doubled drive. Even even an obsession sometimes to find the one person who can meet the two needs. And that, unfortunately, is a recipe for heartbreak. Some singles who fail to recognize this truth never find a marriage partner, and they live with constant loneliness and frustration. Others, on the other hand, do find someone but may actually be worse off than their counterparts. Because six months into the marriage, they discover that some of their intimacy needs are still unmet. Then what? Well, most of the time, 
they start pressuring their spouse to not only meet the first level of relational intimacy, the one that they are consciously aware of, but they also put pressure on them to meet the level two needs. The needs they are not consciously aware of, which has to do again with an authentic, growing relationship with God. And so here's what often happens at that point. They apply so much continuous pressure that if they're not careful, they will destroy the relationship because they expect their spouse to meet intimacy needs that only God can meet. Are you tracking with me? Listen, again, it may or may not be God's will for you to be married. I don't know what God's will is for you in that area of your life, but let me tell you this morning what is God's will, and that is for you to be in love with Him and to walk with Him and to grow in Him. That is God's will. Whether you're married or single, that's God's will. One of the unfortunate realities that we face today is that more and more young people are growing up in homes that have been ravished by things like divorce and alcoholism and drug abuse and emotional and physical abuse. And these same young people carry wounds that that no one sees. Wounds that leave them hurt and needy. Wounds, listen, that drive them to search for someone who can heal them. Who can patch up their broken places. Or at least make their pain go away for a little while. These young people eventually become young adults who consciously start looking for a spouse, but unconsciously they're looking for a healer. Because they've bought into what I would call marriage myth number two, which is this, marriage will heal my brokenness. Let's take a young adult woman who was neglected and devalued and mistreated during her growing up years. She will often feel that she is drowning in a, in a sea of emotions when all of a sudden this handsome life preserver comes floating by. And so what does she do? She does what any drowning person would do. She reaches out and she grabs onto that life preserver with all of her help or with all of her heart because she's hoping that maybe he can help. Maybe he can keep me from drowning. Now, at the same time, this handsome life preserver interprets her reach to him and her tight grip on him as true love. 
Can I just offer a, a word of warning here? A man or woman who latches on to a life preserver dates ferociously for a few months and then gets married is opening the door for disaster. And here's why. One day, the life-preserving spouse is going to wake up and he's going to get out of bed and he's going to say something to this effect. Can you just cut me a little slack? Can you just, can you just give me a little space? I mean, you're, you're, you're holding on to me so tight that I feel like I'm going to suffocate. I need some space. I need some move, some room to move. And the pain-filled drowning spouse is going to interpret that request for space as another round of rejection or neglect or abuse. And the threat will be too much to bear. And so the marriage will then go up for grabs. And at that point, it's anybody's bet whether or not it survives. Does that make sense? Healthy marriages, listen, healthy marriages cannot be built on foundations of brokenness. Spouses cannot be expected to be life preservers. They cannot be expected to do for you what only God can do for you. So marriage myth number two is that marriage will heal my brokenness. And here's the third one we'll talk about this morning. Marriage will ensure my happiness. I mean, it's almost accepted as fact that a quick walk down a center aisle will bring any couple unending happiness and unending bliss. And the truth is, it may or may not. Numbers of people, I want you to get this, numbers of people do not ensure happiness. Happiness is not in quantity of persons, but in quality of personhood. Back to commandment number one for singles. Get a life. Get a life. If you don't have a life by yourself, you're not going to have a life with somebody else. Because happiness is not found in, in numbers of people. It's found in your own personhood. In other words, marriage does not automatically change a person. An unhappy single person quite possibly will remain an unhappy married person. A bitter, angry single person may well become a bitter, angry married person. An impatient single person may remain impatient in the marriage. An unfulfilled single person will most likely be an unfulfilled married person. There's only one way to experience those kinds of character transformations. And there's no member of the opposite sex that can change you in those ways. The only way those changes can be effectively made is through the inner work of the Holy Spirit 
which is not dependent on one's marital status. The myth that marriage will ensure my happiness is really pretty ridiculous when you stop to do the marriage math. One sinner plus one sinner equals how many sinners, class? Two sinners. It's very simple. Double trouble under one roof. And then later down the line, you add a couple of little centerlings. And now you've got quadruple trouble under one roof. In the marriage covenant, God asked two, listen to this, self-willed sinners to become one. It's like putting a dog and a cat in a cage. Say, now get along. I vote for the dog personally, but you cat lover, I'm sorry, but I'm doing the preaching, so. But God, they're two self-willed sinners, and he encourages them to become one, not just in flesh, but one in spirit, and one in attitude, and one in communication, and one in love. And it truly is a lifetime challenge. You married people, help me out there. You marriage people help me out there. That is a lifetime challenge. Absolutely it is. As a matter of fact, it may be the single greatest challenge there is. Listen, even mature, well-adjusted, spirit-filled believers have to work through countless issues. Financial issues. He wants golf clubs. She wants a dishwasher. Recreational issues. He wants to go to the ball game. She wants to go to the mall. I got an easy solution to that. Drop the wife off at the mall, say, honey, I'll pick you up when the game's over. <laughs> Sexual issues. He's romantically inclined tonight. She was last night. Social issues. He likes small gatherings like you and him. She wants to invite the whole church. Every time you listen, every time you turn around, there is a new area of potential disagreement. Now, don't misunderstand me. Marriage can be wonderful, it can be awesome. But if it becomes that, it's because both partners have paid a very high price over many years to make it that way. They will have died to self thousands upon thousands of times. They will have had countless difficult conversations. They will have endured many sleepless nights and strained days. They will have prayed hundreds of prayers for things like wisdom and patience and courage and understanding and the ability to forgive. They will, listen, they will have said, I'm sorry, too many times to remember. Well, Pastor, there's not any magic in the words I do. Zero. 
Again, let me remind you, people who stand before me and say I do are both sinners. Self-willed, selfish, I want to have my own way kind of people. And so if you're going to have a marriage like some of those marriages that, that you see represented in Fellowship Baptist Church, you're going to have to work at it. It doesn't just happen. Marriage does not ensure happiness. These people will have been stretched to the breaking point often enough to have learned this, that unless Christ is at the center of both of their lives, then the odds of achieving marital satisfaction are very, very low. So those are just three marriage myths that explain how not to find the right mate. Now, let's go back to our text, pick it up in verse 10. Let's learn some important principles for how to find the right mate. Look in verse 10. And the servant took camels of, uh, or took ten camels of the camels of his master and departed, for all the goods of his master were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia under the city of Nahor, and, and he made his camels to kneel down without the city by a well of water at the time of, of evening even the time that women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, send me good speed this day and show me kindness and show kindness unto my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water and let it come to pass. That the damsel to whom I shall say, let down thy pitcher, I pray thee that I may drink. And she, shall, and she shall say, drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And thereby shall I know that thou hast showed kindness unto my master. And it came to pass, verse 15, before uh, he had done speaking, even before he, he had finished praying, that behold, Rebekah came out, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, which uh, with her pitcher on, upon her shoulder. And the damsel was very fair to look upon, a virgin. Neither had any man known her. And she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Let me, I pray thee, drink a little water out of thy pitcher. And she said, Look at this, drink, my Lord. She hastened and let down her pitcher upon her hand and gave him drink. And when she had done giving him drink, she said, I will draw water for thy camels also until they have done drinking. She hasted and emptied her pitcher into the trough and ran again under the well to draw water and uh, drew for all his camels. And the man wondering at her held his peace to wit whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. And it came to pass as the camels had done drinking that the man took a golden earring of half a shekel weighed and two bracelets for her hands of ten shekels weight of gold and said, Whose daughter art thou? Tell me, I pray thee, is there room in thy father's house for us to lodge in? And she said unto him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Bethuel, the son of Milcah, which she bare unto Nahor. She said, moreover unto him, we have both straw and provender enough and room to lodge in. And the woman 
And the man bowed down his head and worshiped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who hath not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth. I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. And the damsel ran, verse 28, and told them of her mother's house these things. Here are a few words of advice real quick that I would give any single person who's sensing the urge to merge. Number one, get some godly counsel. Abraham, who at this point in his life was certainly walking with God, gave Eliezer, his, his chief of staff, some good advice. He gave her some, him some good counsel. Listen, singles, before you make any serious decision in this area of your life, seek the advice of people who you know are walking with God. And note I said people and not just someone, as in not just one person. And here's why. Some people may have some preconceived ideas about a person that are not accurate at all. And by seeking the advice of other godly people, then it will be easy for you to say that that's not, see that that's not the case. But by the same token, there may be a number of those that you talk to who actually know that person, and so their opinions are not just based on preconceived notions or what they've heard. They're going to be based on fact. Another reason you want to seek multiple counselors is because they represent a healthy objectivity that will help balance your in-love subjectivity. And then here's my second piece of advice, so important. Pray, pray, pray. The first thing Abraham's servant did was pray. Verse 12. If, and listen, if you're looking for some specific things in a life mate, then you need to be specific when you pray. Don't just pray, God, bring me a man. There are a lot of men out there, they ain't worth having. Lord, just bring me a woman. Be careful what you pray for. I remember when Tyler called his mom after he met Jenny Lee. And by the way, good to have Jenny Lee's mom and her sister with us today. Well, I remember when he called home to his mom because he had met Jenny Lee. He said something to this effect. Mom, I had, had been, I had X amount, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 things on a list that he was looking for. I don't think it was that many. But he did tell his mom, I had X amount of things on the, this list that I was looking for in a wife. And mom, she not only fills up this list, but she adds to it. Amen. That's the way you ought to pray. God, I'm looking for someone like this and like this and like this and like this. There's nothing wrong with laying out your petition specifically before God. Well, preacher, what should I be praying for? Number one, are they a Christian? Huh? The Bible is very clear, very, very clear that believers are not to marry unbelievers. 
Well, preacher, he said he's saved. Well, look for some fruit. Look for some evidence. Beyond being a Christian, do they believe like you do? The Old Testament prophet asked the question, how can two walk together except they be agreed? They're saying, well, I go to my church and he'll go to his church. Listen, that, that just boggles my mind. Are they committed to Christ? And here's why you should find that out, because if they aren't, then the, the most likely scenario is this. You will not bring them up to your level. They will drag you down to theirs. Are they committed to a pure premarital relationship? Well, oh, preacher, come on, this is 2018. I know what year it is. But I also know that this book is unchanging. And that's a discussion that you need to have. Because if you have committed yourself to a life of purity, you need to make sure that they either have made that same commitment or that they are willing to make that same commitment. And by the way, for those who are single again and hoping for remarriage, the Bible is still clear that sex outside of marriage is fornication. I'm not going to apologize for the Bible. So be careful about that. Be very careful. Here's the bottom line. You need to have a list of non-negotiable principles. I'm talking about some things that you will not compromise for anyone for any reason. Here's another thing real quick. Know what kind of person they are. These four elderly ladies were sitting around the table in the little recreation area at the uh, home that they were living in. and They're sitting there, they're playing bridge, and they were keeping a very good eye on who was coming and going. And All of a sudden, this man walks in, and they know right away he's new. And so they perk up. The first one says, you're, you're new here, aren't you? He said, yeah, yeah I, I just moved in. One of the other ladies said, well, where did you move from? And he said, well, to be honest with you, I just moved from San Quentin. I spent 20 years there. Third lady said, got up enough courage and said, well, what were you in for? He said, rather matter-of-factly, I murdered my wife. And immediately the fourth one perked up and said, oh, so you're single then. <laughs> know what kind of person they are. And some people know what kind of person they are, but they get married anyway. Well, I'll change him. We talked about that last week. I'll alter him. Most of the time it doesn't happen. So know what kind of person they are. And then, let me give you this and I'll, I'll close. Go back to our text, verse 17. Stay in the way. Stay in the way. Look at verse 17. Genesis 24. And the servant ran, is that right? 
the right verse, verse 17. I think I got the wrong verse, but there's a verse in there that talks about May 27. Verse 27, and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who hath not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth, I being in the way. When I talk about being in the way, I'm talking about staying in the Lord's way. Stay in the Lord's will. And he'll lead you. It'll be amazing at what he does in your life. Don't panic. Don't be pressured. The worst thing you could do is marry outside of God's will. Listen to your preacher today. It's better to be single in God's will than it is to be married outside of God's will. Let me go back for just a moment to what I said earlier about the two different levels of relational intimacy. There's a horizontal one and there's a vertical one. And out of the two, the vertical one is the most important. Because you can't get to heaven without it. It doesn't matter how happy you are on this level or how good your life is on this level. Listen to me today. If you die and enter into the next life without Jesus, There will be no joy there. There will be no happiness there. There will be no satisfaction there. That's why they call it hell. So if you're here this morning and you haven't established that vertical relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, that's where your journey to marriage needs to start. That's the only way you can get in the way is by being saved. And Whether you're married or single here today, if you've not been born again by God's grace, if you've not come to the place where you realize you were a sinner and that you can't save yourself, but that only God can save you through Jesus' death on the cross, and all you've got to do is call upon his name and he'll save you. Listen, if you've not come to that place in your life that we sung about this morning, if you don't know that your name is written there, you need to get that settled today. And then for those of you who have established that vertical connection with God in salvation, how good is that relationship? What are you doing daily to cultivate that ongoing relationship with God, to keep it strong. Listen, if that part of your life is not good, and I'm just going to be real honest with you today, you need to forget about any other relationship right now. And you need to start focusing on that relationship. And make sure that that relationship is good, and that relationship is strong. Because you don't want to go in to the challenges of marriage without a good daily walk with God.
Because if that relationship isn't good, then no relationship on this level will be good. I said this a number of times. If, there are, are, if there's an issue in a marriage, if there's a struggle in the marriage, I'll guarantee you somebody's not right with God. Somebody's not been in the Word. Somebody's not been praying. Somebody's not, in, not walking with God. And they're in the flesh. And that's why there are struggles and issues in marriage. Now I'm going to tell you today, if you get saved, that you'll not have any problems in marriage. Because you're just a saved sinner, hopefully marrying another saved sinner. Now I'm not going to tell you today, if you're a Christian, that, that your marriage is going to be perfect. Because you know different. But I do know this. Being right on this level will certainly help us in being right on this level. Let's pray.